The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We gather in the praise of God this third Sunday after Pentecost, whether present here in the nave of Marsh Chapel at the heart of the Boston University campus, whether listening live at WBUR 90.9 FM throughout New England or over the live stream at WBUR.org, or listening later to the podcast at bu.edu chapel. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for community life here at Marsh Chapel. I bear greetings on behalf of our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, as he is away in these summer weeks. A special word of greeting this morning to our returning guest preacher, Dr. Robert Franklin, professor of moral leadership at Emory University, director of the religion program at the Chautauqua Institute, and president emeritus of Morehouse College. We are grateful for your presence and your leadership and bearing the word in our midst this Sunday. As we are able, let us stand in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As we gather Sunday by Sunday, we turn our hearts and minds to prayers of confession at the beginning of our service, that we may turn back from that which is past, we may set aside the mistakes and failures of the past week, turn our hearts and minds toward God, receive God's forgiveness, and move forward in the peace of Christ. We confess our sins as we choir sings the traditional Kyrie. Dear friends, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson, a lesson from the epistle to the, to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1 and 13 through 25. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you, that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit. I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, decisions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 16 with the antiphon. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a glorious heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, even at night when my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. The Lord is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also dwells secure. For you do not give up to Sheol or let your faithful ones see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, 
Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thanks be to God for this Sunday morning, last Sunday before our nation's birthday, a day here in Boston, a city of great consequence for the nation and the world. This morning, we are surrounded and enveloped in a light rain and high humidity. It is an extraordinary day to gather. And I send blessings today to my dear friend, Dean Robert Allen Hill and Jan, and to all those who share in ministry and leadership with them here. In the sermon, Transformed Nonconformists, Martin King said these words, the most pressing need of this hour is a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. If our world is to be saved from its pending doom, it will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a nonconforming minority. If the world is to be lifted from the morass of confusion and chaos, it will be done by men and women who have succeeded in standing above the world so that God can lift it through them, end quote. I've just returned from the Republic of South Africa. I traveled with a class of students. It was a class on moral leadership in international context. Emory University's Candler School of Theology sponsors these trips periodically. There were two weeks, three faculty, 15 students, and we visited the breathtakingly beautiful sights of that country at the bottom of the world. If you not, have not been, I hope that you will place it on your bucket list. It is truly an extraordinary sight. There's nothing quite like Table Mountain, some of you know and have seen. It reaches up into the distant clouds, and the top is indeed as flat as your kitchen table. At the southern tip of the continent lies Cape Point, where stunning mountains cascade down into the ocean, where penguins and whales, baboons and seals frolic in the sun. That beauty juxtaposes uneasily alongside the most creative horrors humans have devised for one another. We saw the prison on Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela spent 18 of his 27 years of incarceration. Not unlike Alcatraz, a cold, stone, medieval prison camp on an island just eight miles from a breathtaking shore and cosmopolitan city. We stood in Mandela's tiny prison cell and looked out out the window at a courtyard. A moral giant spent nearly 20 years in this small cage. We worshiped in the Methodist church and met the former pastor, Peter Story, who broke ranks with other white South African Christians to demand equal treatment for the nation's black residents. And we worshiped at Regina Mundi, the Catholic church in Johannesburg, where movement leaders in Soweto met and prayed and sang for strength to confront social evil. But the highlight of the trip was the time we spent with the truly legendary moral leaders who helped usher in a new South Africa. What was that, King, that phrase by Dr. King? If the world is to be lifted from the morass of confusion and chaos, it will be done by people who have succeeded in standing above the world so that God can lift it through them. We met some of those people. We drew inspiration from the Reverend Frank Chicani, 
soft-spoken, short in stature, but magnificent in spirit. He led the South African Council of Churches. During the worst years of apartheid, he himself was imprisoned and tortured. We sat with him in a circle as he spoke of his torture sessions. The torturers applied electric shocks and burned his flesh. They taunted, Mr. Shikani, you've spoken to thousands and thousands in churches and football stadiums, but now here you are crying like a baby. We sat with Barney Pichana, best friend to Steve Biko, a charismatic and dynamic student leader who challenged racism and was banned by the government. He spent his entire adolescence and young adulthood looking over his shoulder for authorities who wanted him dead. He later became president of the nation's largest university, UNISA, University of South Africa. But our emotional and intellectual high point came when we sat and spent precious time with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, winner of the 1984 Nobel Peace Prize, president of the South African Council of Churches, leader of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. How many of you recall the moment when the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, met to hear the confessions of police officers, military leaders, and even gang members speak openly about the horrors they committed against other human beings. Women brutalized, protesting school children shot down in the streets in 1976. Fathers tortured and hacked to death, proud neighbors, neighborhoods raised, a lifetime of building burned overnight. The catalog of outrages stacked one upon another began to rise high in those TRC commission hearings. Outside that hearing room, nature whispered its constancy and faithfulness. Clouds gathered around Table Mountain as they have done for thousands of years. The pelicans soared gracefully along the shore. Penguins and whales danced in the ocean. But there in that room, Ingrid de Kock wrote a poem about the first meeting of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in April 1996, East London, South Africa. She wrote, on the first day after a few hours of testimony, the archbishop wept. He put his gray head on the long table of papers and protocols, and he wept. The national and international cameramen filmed his weeping, his misted glasses, his sobbing shoulders, the call for a recess. It doesn't matter what you thought of the archbishop before or after, of the settlement, the commission, or what the anthropologists flying in from less studied crimes and sorrows said about the discourse, or how many doctorates, books, and installations followed, or even if you think this poem simplifies, lionizes, romanticizes, mystifies. There was a long table, starched purple vestment, and a few hours of testimony. The archbishop, the chair of the commission, laid down his head and wept. That's how it began, end quote. A preacher in South Africa wept over the brokenness and sinfulness of that self-declared Christian nation. But those tears are matched by those of our native son as we prepare to enter the season of July 4, celebrating our national history, our independence, Writing in his letter from Birmingham jail about the failure of courage exhibited by Alabama's white churches during the civil rights protests, Martin King wrote, in deep disappointment, I have wept 
over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I'm in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. So here we are today, approaching a season where there will be great celebration, as there should be. But I would submit to you this morning that Independence Day, next week, July 4th, should function as a moral checkpoint for all of us. The church in America, the Christian church, a moral checkpoint. I believe that we are called during those checkpoints to recalibrate our moral compass. As believers, we peer into a chaotic world and into an uncertain future as we seek God's direction and God's guidance. This world is in a mess. And unlike in days past where the church, synagogue, mosque, other houses of worship were sources of direction and hope, the society has lowered its expectation for believers. If we speak and serve and struggle, some few may notice, but most will ignore. That is part of what I see in today's text that was read, a recalibration. Jesus goes to his home congregation there in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. He reads a familiar passage from Isaiah 61. He interprets the scripture to suggest that God's love of humanity is more inclusive than we have been led to believe. The congregation resents being decentered. It is a difficult sermon that calls them to reach out to the poor, the hungry, victims of history and political economy. How do they respond? The response is not contained in today's part of the lectionary, but if you read further in Luke 4, you find that things go sideways quickly. People are angry. They think this sermon will cost us too much. The implications of this are too disruptive. The preacher is quickly disinvited from any further words in that chamber. Maybe like being disinvited from delivering the State of the Union Address to Congress. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said, that, quote, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. And so amidst our income and wealth inequality, racial and ethnic polarization, the despair and aimlessness of many of our young people, we confront Dr. King's persistent patient gaze. As we observe partisan divisions and growing mistrust and hatred in our nation, on July 4th, that moral checkpoint, that invitation to recalibrate our moral compass, pause a, mor a moment that morning and ask, what have I done in the past 12 months to move the arc of the moral universe toward greater justice, reconciliation, and truth? What have I done, what have we done to ensure that the next generation gets it right? What if the future of this city, Boston, or the city in which you, from which you now listen. What if the future of that community, especially the quality of race and ethnic relations, depends entirely on the actions of the people seated in this sanctuary? 
how could we possibly begin to approach such a question? Might we do nothing and watch history unfold around us? Might we simply grow angry at the messengers as they did in Luke chapter 4? As we move through this season, this moral checkpoint for America, what can we do that might add value? What new imaginative bold thing can Marsh Chapel and Boston University do to help us bring peace and reconciliation? What are we willing to risk? Let us not be too timid or afraid to fail. The poet Goethe said, dream no small dreams, for they have no power to move the hearts of people. If we succeed and add value, then we will have come close to standing above the world so that God can lift it through us. And if we fail, we will fail standing next to the moral leaders of South Africa and the greatest patriots of our own nation. For even in failing, we fail forward. In falling, we can fall forward. The spiritual writer and Franciscan Richard Rohr reflects on this dynamic in his wonderful essay, Gazing Upon the Mystery. A quote, the genius of Jesus' ministry is that he reveals how God uses tragedy, suffering, pain, betrayal, and death itself, not to punish us, but in fact to bring us to God and to our true self which are frequently discovered simultaneously. There are no dead ends in the spiritual life. Nothing is above or beyond redemption. Everything can be used for transformation. G.K. Chesterton said it best, the Christian faith hasn't been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But as we approach July 4, I ask, will you dream and try new things for the healing of our nation? Or will you remain on the sidelines, attending only to the familiar, the safe, and the proximal? Blaise Pascal said, God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon humans the dignity of being causes. You can be a cause in this season. Well, I began with Martin, and I conclude with Mary. What will you do now, and what will we do without the voice of Mary Oliver, that extraordinary poet? For as I hear Martin calling, if the world is to be lifted above the morass of confusion and chaos, it will be done by people who have succeeded in standing above the world so that God can lift it through them. And Mary responds, I want to think again of dangerous and noble things. I want to be light and frolicsome. I want to be improbable, beautiful, and afraid of nothing as though I had wings. Martin calls, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Mary responds, keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. Mars Chapel, July 4th is coming. We will remember and celebrate great patriots, transformed nonconformists. George Washington and Abigail Adams, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Yes, they ask us, will you take up the cross, suffering and sacrifice for the common good? Are we willing to experience redemptive discomfort? Martin responds, the time is always right to do what is right. And Mary says, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Thanks be to God for all the prophets and poets and patriots and witnesses who endured redemptive suffering, and they live on now to tell about it. Amen.
seated. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he advised, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let us heed his advice and pray. You are welcome to stand, remain seated, or come forward to kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Almighty God, our hearts are glad, our souls rejoice, and we rest secure knowing that you are our Lord. You are our God, our rock, and our salvation, our God whose way is holy, our God who works wonders, our God who shows us the path of life. We bow before you in awe, thanksgiving, and praise, for there is none as great as you. We bow before you humbly and confess our sins. Like the people of Israel, we have doubted you when we are in deserts of despair. We celebrate our successes in life, and with pride and arrogance, we compare ourselves to others. We repeat your powerful prayer, saying that we will forgive those who trespassed against us while asking you to forgive us. And yet we don't love our neighbor. We plant and nurture the seeds of divisiveness. We are selfish. We forget the needy. We judge others. Forgive us, gracious God. We rededicate ourselves to you today so that we may be led by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, loving God, for another chance. We pray that we don't take your blessings for granted or your forgiveness lightly. We ask you to lead us, Holy Spirit, so that we take every opportunity to express our faith through love. Lead us so that we extend a loving hand without judgment to ease the suffering of those around us and have the courage and strength to forgive. Endow us with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We pray for peace. We pray for moral leadership in our homes, our schools and churches, our communities, our federal government, and the world. Let us make progress toward peace beyond the handshake. Bless our nation and its leaders. Help us all to understand that although we are diverse in many ways, gender, race, sexual orientation, politics, and the way we worship you, to name a few. This nation is made of one, is, is one made of many. We pray for the fruit of the Spirit so that we value and respect our differences as a source of strength rather than a reason for division. Abide with us, Holy Spirit, and give us generosity of spirit so that we move beyond apathy and arrogance. We thank you for this opportunity to bring our prayers to you. Restore us and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us through our challenges. Merciful God, bless the sick, the lost, and those in grief. We ask you to comfort us, heal us, and fix us, knowing, secure in knowing that if we ask, you will answer. 
Help us to patiently listen for, hear, and recognize your response. Give ear to us and hear our prayer. We ask these things in the name of the one who ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now as a community of faith, we join voices to pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread and, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew, passing that book along to your neighbors so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We are grateful once again to Dr. Robert Franklin for his voice and his moral leadership in our midst, and we wish him safe travels and a joyful rest of these summer months. We note that next Sunday, not only is it a communion Sunday here at Marsh Chapel, but we also have, following the service, our annual Independence Day barbecue. There is, uh, we all are warmly invited to attend. There is still opportunity to contribute to that event. If you would like to do so, please see Heidi Fermanis Courts following the service. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate on George Oldroyd's setting of a Richard Roll poem, Prayer to Jesus. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
God of all goodness and grace, receive the gifts we offer and grant that our whole life may give you glory and praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Dear friends, let us remember that life is short and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love, make haste to be kind, and go forth in a spirit of redemptive discontent that you may be moral leaders and God may lift up the world through you. Amen. <laughs>